So I have to tell you that uh, when we originally were setting the sermon preaching schedule, I was supposed to preach last weekend and then the first weekend in April. But as time has gone on, uh, Chris approached me. He said, you know, I'm feeling a little nervous about you preaching in April um, because I'm due in April. And so I was like, well, okay, I'm sure I'm going to be fine. Um, But now that I'm closer, I'm like, that was a good call. I think it's a little risky (laughs) to go into April. Um, So this will actually be my last sermon until I get back from maternity leave. And so I hope I go out with a bang. We'll see. Um, um, So today we are going to be looking at the scripture and Luke of Jesus's first sermon. And I think all of us clergy can remember our first sermon. I don't know if you all do. I'm sure if you were to go listen to it, you'd like cringe, right? Like I want that to be a race because I'm like, I don't know what I said. I don't know how long I talked. I probably don't even agree with myself anymore. Who knows? Um, but preaching is such an unusual thing. It's always special. No matter how many times you do it, um, at least for me, I get nervous and, and all that. And today's story uh, tells you why a, a little bit. But I, I shared this at the 845, and Jason and Mike are like, you need to share it again. And I was like, okay. So, and this is me not searching for something to happen after I preach. I don't tell you this story you'll understand why. So my husband, Scott, is also a pastor. He's a senior pastor at at Arapahoe UMC, but we worked at Lover's Lane together for um, 10 years, and um, we would both preach in the different venues, and every single time he preached in the sanctuary, he would get applause every single time, and he's like, well, they, they clap for everyone in there, I have never been applauded in the sanctuary. And he's like, oh, okay. (laughs) And he has slept on the couch ever since. So, um, but this is me not asking for you to to applaud at the end, okay? I only tell you this because it's just nerve-wracking. You never know how people are going to respond after you preach. Um, But so today we are in Luke 4, and I wanted to set up a few things before we jump into it. So if you were with us last week, you know that we talked about the temptation, and before that, um, right before the temptation, we had um, John the Baptist declare someone that was going to come after him was far greater, uh, and then Jesus enters, John the Baptist baptizes baptizes him, the, the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit de- uh, descends on Jesus, a voice from heaven declares, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased, and then Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit is then led by the Spirit into the wilderness, which we covered last week, and so there's a lot of talk of the Spirit being with Jesus. Um, he is tempted by the devil, um, but the devil does not win, and then finally, finally, Jesus begins his ministry in the Galilee area. And guess what? He is still filled with the Spirit. Now, today's particular scripture, I thought it was helpful to kind of understand what's going on because I'm trying to understand the scripture at a better level. But so for you, for for our listeners, we find that Jesus is at his home synagogue and uh, a place that is familiar to him, Those that were there were probably used to seeing him there, whether he was just sitting and listening to the teaching or maybe participating in the service. 
And the service usually began uh, with the Shema, which is the Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then they would uh, do the Decalogue, Decalogue, it's a very hard word, for the Ten Commandments. And then there'd be the reading of the scripture, there'd be 18 benedictions, uh, the Psalms, talking about um, the scripture, everything that was read, and then a blessing. Readers were usually chosen beforehand, those that would read the scripture. Um, Then after they would read the scripture, they would sit down to actually teach, which bodes well for me if I need to sit down during my sermon. I'm just practicing what they did. So you'll see this model as we read the story today in Luke 4. And I wanted to paint this picture because it's not unusual that Jesus is showing up. It wasn't unusual for him to read um, a particular prophet. That is usually kind of the order of the service. He wasn't on a synagogue tour called Torah Talks. Um, He didn't have a merchandise table out in the courtyard. He was simply participating in the service like he had probably done countless times. And no one initially thought what he said or him being there was unusual. So with that stage being set, let's hear Luke 4, 14 through 30. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he said to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months. And there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Um, There was also some lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman and Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So when we hear this story, it kind of takes a weird turn at the end. Not quite as weird as a story of bears mauling children weird, but still weird nonetheless. 
you think it's going well. I mean, you're reading, I mean, in verse 22, it says they spoke well of him, were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. So what in the world is going on in this story that makes them want to hurl him off a cliff? I searched the scripture because I'm like, clearly I must be missing something. We know in, in, in verse 15 that he was being praised by everyone. He was teaching in synagogue. So what was different about this time? Did Jesus pick some scripture that he sh shouldn't read? I mean, we read that someone gave him this scroll. It's not like he came up there and pulled something out of his robe and said, oh, this will get them, right? It wasn't a surprise. Someone had given it to him. Yes, he found a particular place in Isaiah to read. So maybe that was the issue? Did he change the words? Did he say something he wasn't supposed to? Was he not supposed to say, upon me or anointed me? But if we go back to Isaiah 61, that's what it says. There's a few lines missing, but it's not like he adds something. So what's going on? What is so offensive? But it takes a turn when he sits down and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word today changes things. And when I picture this scene, I almost picture maybe there was applause. I don't know if they applaud in synagogue, especially back then. But they hear this parable of scripture, and I'm sure they're like, yes. And then they're like, wait, what? <laughs> today? What do, you mean, what do you mean by that? Suddenly people are confused. People are maybe a little offended. They don't know how to process what Jesus has just proclaimed. Now the book of Isaiah is full of messianic prophecies and talk of a servant, uh, a prophet. So maybe it's a little bit more forthcoming about who is here. But I feel like the reaction of everyone there is, what does this mean? What does this mean? And this is where Jesus gets a little sassy with the people. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself, or do here in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. If you were with us last week, the temptation of Christ, uh, you know, the devil tried to get him to do things that he wanted. He wanted Jesus to make a production, to show off, to flex his power, and Jesus was like, no. <laughs> I mean, he quoted Deuteronomy back to him. He did more than just say no. But Jesus was kind of establishing, look, I'm not here to mess around, or more importantly, to be pushed around with demands and any sort of mocking. Jesus maybe knows that the request may get out of hand, that the sense of ownership over him, especially in his hometown, could get ugly. He's trying to establish from the beginning who he is, who he came for, and what kind of work he was going to do. What I'm picking up on, along with the scholars that I researched, is that the people in Nazareth wanted to feel special, like maybe they got first dibs on Jesus, that he should bend to their every request and demand, because they were his people, right? They were people that had watched him grow up, his friends, his neighbors, I mean, okay, you're here to set captives free and recover sight and release oppressed. That's us. Here you go. Pick us. Choose us. We need you. We deserve you. 
There's also something else going on here. There's a particular line that lasts uh, from Isaiah 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What does that mean? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is to signify that it was a year of jubilee, which originally comes from Leviticus 25. What happens during a year of jubilee? Great questions. <laughs> Broad strokes, it happens every 50 years and means a year dedicated to rest, to restoration of property, and to freeing people from debt, servitude, and slavery. A year dedicated to rest? Sign me up for that. <laughs> but there's more to the details of the debt and, and all of that, which is very confusing. I won't bore you with the details, but for some, maybe a year of Jubilee is not great. If you're losing land or giving up a lease or sharing profits or losing your help, so what this crowd maybe is dealing with, why they're angry is that they're like, well, maybe Jubilee's not great. They're, they're nervous and scared because what does Jesus mean by the year of Lord's favor? They're unsure of how they will be impacted and how their lives could change. What I think is most likely happening is that they know things are going to change, but they don't know how. And that brings them fear and worry and ultimately anger. I don't know if you knew this, people don't like change. <laughs> and I think especially when it looks different than what they had envisioned. And I can tell you that the people listening to Jesus on this day weren't really envisioning or expecting the long-awaited Messiah to come from their wee little town and be the son of Joseph. They certainly didn't think he was going to show up and say the things he did and do the things he did. As we move through this story, people are getting angry. And when Jesus brings up Elijah and Elisha, he, that's where he really sets things off. And I was like, why? What's going on here? So the two stories that he mentions involving Elijah and Elisha are important. So Elijah, it says that he helps a widow, a particular widow, who's an outsider. She's not a Jew. She he provides a miracle. Um, her son, who has died, gets restored to life. Elijah, or then Elisha, heals a leper. A leper who was a commander in the enemy army. The enemy army against Israel. So Jesus, just to make sure I'm getting this straight, you're going to be a prophet. You're going to be a person like Elisha and Elijah in those two stories. You're going to be about people outside the people of Israel? No. We've been waiting for our Messiah, the one that will deliver us, the one that will save us, the one that will change everything for us. We're the ones that have been waiting. And Jesus makes a mess of that and says, I didn't come just for you, I came for all, even our enemies. So these people are thinking, is this what the Messiah is going to do? That's the mission? That's the purpose? And so they decide he isn't what they want, and so they run him out of town, looking for a way to throw him over a cliff. This inclusive and grace-filled Messiah is not what they expected and clearly not what they wanted. I think they're angry because they felt as maybe they were forgotten. What about us? 
What about us? Some of us can misread scripture and interpret it in a way that only benefits ourselves. Or we try to put Jesus in this box that is safe and comfortable and does and say things that are only helpful for us. And if we aren't careful, we can paint a picture of Jesus that is very different than the one that actually lived. Because we are so tempted to make things about us. I mean, think about the disciples who argued, hey, who's going to be at the right and left of your hand, Jesus? They struggled with the, what about us? But it's clear in the way that Jesus shows up that it's not about you, it's not about me, or our family, or our friends, or our church, or our denomination, or our country, or people that look and talk and think like us. And it may be uncomfortable and challenging at times, and we may even be tempted to feel like we get the short end of the stick. But I assure you, we do not. This grace and love that God has for all of us is truly extraordinary. There's plenty to go around. God does not have favorites. Besides me, that's it. And so the question for us today is when we hear a message that challenges us or makes us a little uncomfortable, what's our response? To throw the preacher out? To say, what about us? What about me? Or what about when we read scripture that maybe even convicts us? Do we close the Bible entirely and say, oh, enough of that? Or do we say, let me go to something that makes me feel good about myself instead? See, I pray we can look inward and reflect on what the Spirit is trying to say. I pray that we could say, you know, thank you, God, for coming for me and for him and for her and them and those over there and those over there. And you can continually ask the Spirit, say more about that. What are you trying to teach me? Look, I agree that some of the words and teachings of Christ are hard. They are hard, and they don't sit well with me either. But I think that's the point. Jesus came to transform the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we live. So let's not throw the preacher out. Let's not throw the Bible out. But let's pay attention to where the Spirit leads. Amen.